maybe I am trying to interact differently. And so I think that giving ourselves space to feel our feelings and then to ask, what are my feelings telling me has been one of the best things I could have done for my spirituality. Because then when I do have a spiritual experience, I can actually interpret it. Like, oh, I had a prayer time and it made me feel joyful. Not just like I had a quote unquote spiritual high. Cause I think that's what, a lot of what we're taught. And I'm like, oh no, I actually had this interaction with the divine that made me feel confident or that made me feel peaceful or that made me feel self-assured. Yeah, I'm looking to make it a little lighter. <laughs> Are we mutually aligned oh, right now? Oh my goodness. Uh, there's, there's always, always two, two versions. <laughs> I mean, you're moving a little slow, but... Working I, I, really a- hard. <laughs> we will definitely talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> Love or work, work, work. Welcome to the Love Work Podcast. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. And wow, what a series we have had that we have been journeying on in wellness, in counseling and therapy and we've all had, the we've things. We've talked to a lot of therapists. Talked to a lot. I feel I feel like, man. We've had our own little counseling in this whole thing. This has been quite the counseling session. <laughs> I hope you've learned a lot. We've definitely benefited from this. <laughs> you we. See did you see that? Yeah, uh, and I just said we. Did you pick up on that part? I did. It was great. It's been really great for you. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. It's been well, great since for both I've of us. learned so much, and now I'm the expert. Ooh, I think that... you're gonna be playing some mind tricks on me, <laughs> little Jedi. You. <laughs> okay, so today is is kind of a different space we haven't fully dug into before. Yeah, um, which I think is gonna be kind of cool. Yes, today we have our friend Brandy Miller, and she has her own podcast called Reclaiming My Theology. And this is a podcast that I've been listening to for quite some time since the beginning and have really learned a lot from her about spirituality. And therefore, you know, we're talking about wellness. You know, we've talked to therapists, we've talked to mental health experts, we've done uh, the physical kind of aspect of our bodies. And then I think another important aspect is our soul, our spirit, and whatever faith or non-faith that looks like, I think this conversation matters. Yeah. We're rooted down here in the South. I mean, in the context of our history, our past, we come from this a faith-based perspective that comes from a, kind of a Christian background. Obviously, being rooted in the South, that's like an overarching theme in the culture that we do life in. And as you listen to this, I want to make sure that you realize it. it's not just about that. It's about what is your past story that you have to come to grips with? that you have to process and how are you bringing that to your own life? How are you bringing that into the relationships you have? Is that a fair way to open? Yeah. Yeah. I think she talks a lot about how she is learning to, you know, be grateful for the things of her past, but also see the different harms of the things of her past and then be able to move into a new territory of a new kind of spirituality and what that looks for her. And so she kind of guides us through her story and through her experiences. And so I think and we hope that this would be an encouragement to you to then also be looking at 
your past and your own walk and your own journey and your spiritual journey. Yeah, we talk about a this four-part quadrant that she made fun of me about and that I think was awesome. Um, we talk about spiritual numbness. We also talk about the feelings wheel, which I actually don't think we've ever talked about on the podcast. But it's, We have. Have we? Okay, because this yes. played a huge role in, in my We've in my definitely journey. talked about the feelings wheel. Well, I shouldn't have brought that up then, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, well, but we'll and bring if you it did, back if you've up. never heard it, you need to go back to every podcast no, we've ever. I actually recorded. know the exact podcast. What one was it? Josh and Susan Robinson. Oh, they brought it up. Yeah, yeah, and we will link to it as well in our show notes. We don't have to like it's literally all over the internet. If you Google oh. feelings, we'll you'll you'll find it. All right, so today. We hope you enjoy and are challenged by our conversation with Brandy Miller. All right, Brandy, I'm going to flip the question that you always ask how you start your podcast <laughs> onto you because I'm a fan. But you always start with the question, what does it mean to be you right now? And so I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners in that way. Thanks. I always feel like I get punked a little bit when I go on other people's podcasts and get asked it because I'm like, dang, that's a hard question. I'm yeah. like, oh yeah, because I do this <laughs> to people every single week. Uh, but what it means to be me right now is to be a Black woman living in the U.S. trying to figure out what it means to live well. And right now that means a lot of thinking about voting rights and Christianity and how we might help Christians suck less if we want to be really colloquial about it and ask mm -hmm. questions about how to draw people into more authentic relationships with each other and with the divine. And so as I do that, it means that I have to practice that myself, which means I do a lot of trying to pursue joy in the midst of pain and chaos. It means that I try to be a really good friend. I eat a lot of food. I have a garden and I'm trying to figure out what it means to tend to myself as I tend to other people. And so that's a lot of it right now. I also weight lift and do a lot of normal people things like play board games and lay on the couch too much. And I bought a Nintendo Switch recently. So I've been taking a little oh foray through Breath of the Wild, which is the most overwhelming open world game I've ever played. <laughs> <laughs> you and our son I both. know. What's yes. Nico in right now? What is <laughs> that? Isn't that the one? It's the, wait, Breath of the Wild is... Uh, Zelda. 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 Yeah. That's, that's the game he he's playing started. right now. Listen, I have the tone, the music and the tone in my head constantly. because like, I'm, I'm Yeah, it's just nonstop hearing. Yeah. All right. Well, your spirituality started in white church spaces, is my understanding from listening mm -hmm. to you a lot. So as a Black woman, can you just talk a little bit about how that defined your faith and kind of also then how that led you on your new kind of podcast journey? Yeah. So the answer to that is a little bit intense in some ways because there are ways in which I describe myself as being indoctrinated into whiteness or white culture and Christianity at the same time. And so what I mean by that is that there is no culturally neutral way to engage with spirituality. And because I was involved in predominantly white conservative spaces, it also meant that I only saw my spirituality through that lens. And so even though I am a black woman and do black people stuff, like I didn't know that there were other ways to think about God, to think about what it means to worship, to pray, to be in relationship with other people. And so I fundamentally misunderstood that, or I, I fundamentally didn't understand that you could look at Jesus, God, spirituality, religion in different ways. 
and that have have those be valid because I was told that that was universalism somehow and that that was like the way to drag yourself down to hell. And because a lot of the white spaces that I grew up in were so obsessed with truth and this kind of obsession with the written word and like what's on the page is the thing that is the best, it made even exploring other ways of being, even as a Black woman, really challenging and made it so that any kind of culturally contextual theology that was named was seen as secondary or tertiary to this kind of complete structure that was white theology. And so what that forced me to do in a lot of ways was dissociate to say, okay, I'm black, but really like I'm Christian first. And instead of saying like, we can't actually segment or compartmentalize ourselves like that, but I was taught that you should like, oh yeah, all that black stuff. You just like, you got to put, you got to submit that underneath Jesus somehow first, instead of saying, actually, what does it mean for me to be a follower of Jesus in the fullness of what it means to be who I am? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my podcast journey has been asking, what were the cultural aspects of my Christianity that taught me that I couldn't be myself? And are there other ways to think about those things? And how might other people be freed to be more fully themselves when distanced from a, I say this like it is, with a little bit of facetiousness, like purely white way of knowing the world. Mm. You mentioned earlier, you alluded to this and kept going specifically related to relationships, how it shaped your view of relationships. Or Can you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. So I think the main way that I think about it is, is in terms of individualism, that like what people did individually mattered much more than who we were collectively. So we could be a community that was doing a lot of good or a lot of harm, and it always fell back on like one person. And so the church never had to be accountable for the pain that we were creating in the world because it was like, well, the pastor had the affair or that person messed up or that person's sinful, but like we're the body of Christ, we're unified, we're like all of these things so that made it so we couldn't have a communal approach to how we did anything, which also meant that anytime that you were hearing a lesson or a sermon, you were to apply that individually, unless it had to do with like giving. And in that case, that was always communal. Like <laughs> you just had to give more and more money. <laughs> but it was like, there were like, right, there's all these ways to do spirituality where we apply scripture, we apply it to teaching. And this is true of any kind of learning, but it's like, you can apply it individually and internally, or you can apply it individually and externally. You can apply it communally internally or communally externally. And all I had as a frame of reference for how to live life, not just my spiritual life, but because my Christianity was supposed to be my whole life, everything was individual internal. And so that made it so that I just didn't learn a lot about accountability or how to ask questions or how to have doubt or how to treat people with compassion who did those things because I was taught to see them as inherently evil. And so what I mm. often experienced in my relationships is that I was taught to view people as inherently sinful and thus needing to be saved from every part of themselves or their lives rather than as people who are whole and good in and of themselves. And so I think that those all came from kind of this rigid white evangelical background that I grew up in. Hmm. Wow. That's really good. I mean, I, I think that you've nailed a lot of what we're talking about, but in this series, we're kind of talking about this whole wellness. And I think you hit on that a little bit with how you were saying you disassociated yourself a little bit, but so we're talking about wholeness and wellness. We've been talking to so many therapists, mind, body, all of these things. And so now we're kind of coming to soul and to spirit. So what would you think is or why you think the spirit and the soul is so important and connected to our wellness journey? 
I mean, I just think that a lot of things can't be explained by what we experience cognitively in our minds or physically in our bodies. And that there's a lot of things that our bodies and our minds collectively, like kind of our inner sense of self tells us about the world. Um, I even think about like, like little things, like when you walk into a space and you sense that there's danger and you're like, wait, okay, maybe I should do something about that. And I think a lot of what time, what happens is that spirituality teaches us to numb that sense, that internal sense of knowing, whether that's body, mind, spirit, or the combination of those things, and numbs us to ourselves rather than helping us to be fully and understand ourselves fully. And so as I think about wellness, like our, like our spiritual wellness or the wellness of our souls or our like kind of inner sense, our deeper sense of being, I think that we have to first start by talking about what are the things that numb us from ourselves um, the things that we choose, whether it's coping or in, or disengagement, or the things that we're indoctrinated into or enculturated into, that make it so that we cannot hear ourselves, that we cannot be with ourselves, or that we just suppress or kind of tamp down hmm. ourselves. And I think that so much of in in my experience as a Christian, like a lot of Christianity is about like trying to make your soul pure or like keep your soul from being like. I don't know, like, like in Christian language, like uh, defiled by the flesh or by the world or something. Mm. And it assumes that your soul or your spirit is this like fragile thing that has to be like protected from all harm rather than saying we are complex beings who interact with the world in complex ways that are always impacting us regardless of whether we are aware of that. And so for me, thinking about spiritual wellness is about knowing ourselves more fully, trusting ourselves more, more fully and understanding the implications of what happens to our bodies, to our lives, to our minds when we are actually integrated. Hmm. I love that. I'm still thinking back to the fourth. The, yeah. Like I was like, he, as you were talking, I was on the pre- notes. He's I'm got st- this like quadrant. I'm like still back on the other question. Indiv- I'm sorry. I'm still like, I'm like, right. still taking notes. I told you this was going to be good to be ready. With yeah. Notes. Thinking about when something comes at you, basically you process that individually and internally or individually and externally or, uh, I think you use the word communally. Mm-hmm. There's a lot there. Um, yes. <laughs> that, like, to even. And and wouldn't process. you say, uh, well, I, I guess, what would you say in sense of like, so, so there's four things that you kind of talked about mm-hmm. how we can process. And wouldn't you say that all four matter is just yeah, not are, are putting yeah. all your focus, like all one way to process is the most important and only way into mm-hmm. one of those quadrants. Like, yes, right. It's more holistic, more better for your wellness to be able to do all mm-hmm. four, process it in all four ways. Yes. Well, and at risk of sounding like a white man who does like group coaching or something, I think that there's a way that- Which is me. (laughs) (laughs) Just for clarity. My bad. Um, right. Listen, there, we can those, talk about it. That's great. I that's just, it. We just, I just feel like that's a category of folks who loves a good quadrant. And um, <laughs> a, I'm a, like lifting it. I'm like trying. I'm like writing it down. You're saying, so, listen, you're nailing me. I love it. I love it. But what I think about oftentimes is that other quadrant where like you have things that are urgent and important, not important, but right. like urgent. And, and I feel like a lot of people live in this urgent and important category all the time and can live more like some things are always going to be there, but you want to live holistically by being a balanced person. And I think that a mm. lot of what white evangelicalism has done to people who are Christian and who are not because it's the dominant cultural narrative in our society is to say that everything needs to be in this individual internal mm-hmm 
space. Mm -hmm. And it robs us of the ability to be balanced and holistic and really robs us of relationships in that way. And so I think about those that as a metric for holistic wellness. So if I look at a community of people, in my context, I consult churches oftentimes. And I'm often asking like, when you have a sermon or when you have a Bible study or when you have like a spiritual, even if just like a spiritual moment, you're out in nature, something hits you. How do you process that? Like, do you just keep that in yourself? Do you interact more with that physically? Do you bring that to community to converse around? And there's such a lopsidedness to how most communities operate, whether they're Christian or not. I think a lot of businesses do this too. Like if something needs to change, those things are rarely going to be like public communal. Accountability is always like, that person felt really bad about the dumb thing they said or the dumb thing they did. And now they're going to go deal with that over there somewhere rather than dealing with things together. And so I just think that holistic wellness in this way isn't just spiritual. It's just very like practical, good human stuff. Yeah. I mean, and I think the relationship I have with Andre, I mean, I think we, you know, communal doesn't always necessarily mean a large community. It could just mean the two Mm -hmm. of us, you know, like, I, I think we wrestle with, finding our individuality in the midst of our relationship and celebrating yeah. that within each other. And then also finding times that we should have these communal experiences together and then debating, like, I think this part should be communal. And she's like, no, this should be individual. You don't, you know, or like creating what we each probably believe is better for ourselves and better together. Mm-hmm. Isn't always the same. Yeah. And yeah, and I I think even that goes into spirituality, right? So like having a relationship, two different people, two different places in life, two different experiences in their faith and their spiritual journeys. And then that importance of like, yes, we're trying to connect with that together, but we're also at Mm -hmm. two different places a lot of times in the same context of that. Like, what would you say to that in those relational kind of tensions, whether that's friendship, romantic, whatever, in a church setting, your your community of people around you, what would you say in those ways? I mean, I just think that the options that we have for how relationships and decision-making should work are very limited. And I actually turn to queer folks a lot in this because I think queer folks are charting journeys and creating resources around how to have and be in relationships that are not typical in our society. And so I just think that part of it is just being creative and imagining worlds that are different. So I have friends who, when they first got married, decided to move into a communal living house. And I was like, oh, in the Christian world, it's like your first year of marriage, you silo off and then people can check in on you in one to two years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were like, they're like, no, we're going to like, gonna we're going to be living with people. We're going to share our money. We're going to share our food. We're going to share our lives with people. And it just meant that they didn't have that much privacy. And I was like, oh, I don't think I realized that for a lot of people, like privacy was the highest value that like this unit, it's like two become one. And now you're just like that, you know, you're that individual and you just kind of silo everybody out. And what I found is that those communities ended up being way more healthy Mm. because their spouse or their partner or their friend wasn't the only person who was giving input into their life. Because I think what I've seen happen with a lot of my married Christian friends specifically is that they silo into a couple They are their only source of input or feedback unless they have like one like random pastor or some like mentor. And then they're the only people who are giving each other input. And people from the outside are like, hold up, y'all are doing some wild stuff out here. Or like, you're real convinced on that you're right on that. You really aren't. You need to take a seat. You know, like, and having that as just a regular part of their relationship was something that was atypical, but really healthy and really good. And so I wonder if there are ways that we actually have to be brave enough to 
allow our relationships to be atypical and in the atypicality of those things mm-hmm. to find ways of being that are healthy, life-giving and good, recognizing that kind of the in the, in terms of relationships like heteronormative, whatever, just actually is not that sustainable or functional for everyone as evidenced by the 50% divorce rate. So I just feel like clearly what we're doing isn't working. So can we turn to communities who are far more creative than we might be to ask, yeah, what does it mean to be different people in relationship with each other and how might we do that differently? Mm. It's really good to think about for sure. So you kind of were talking sorry i keep i'm like a i'm like a question back on everything that Seriously, we i'm like ready to move and he keeps going back all right i mean sorry for wanting to go deep you know and in, in these <laughs> just okay white boy keep going okay you kind of alluded to this this concept of being numb to ourselves is there times to be okay with that numbness like i'm like some seasons like i just want to netflix and chill you know like mm-hmm. Where is that? But but unfortunately, it can it can take over too much of mm-hmm. life. Where does that balance rest where you're consistently being able to check in with yourself? Also, into a, a growing and uniqueness in spirituality. I, I don't know. Have you ever mm-hmm. pondered those questions? Yeah, especially in the like COVID reality that yeah, we're in exactly, right now. Exactly. Coping and numbing are ways that we survive. Like mm-hmm. th- there are ways that we survive. And I think that many of us are taught that like numbing and coping in any way is harmful or negative. For me, the the line for me is when it becomes habitual and uncontrolled. So like when, and I, I want to make a caveat that like with mental health, like sometimes like when we are depressed or anxious, we cannot control how our bodies are responding. So we might lay in bed all day or we might use substances to numb ourselves because we have like, we don't have other options or tools maybe at the given time to do things. So I want to just be sensitive to that, but also to name that for me personally, the balance is like, I have signs when I am not doing well and I have signs when I'm not like when I'm not doing well and I may not come back from it by myself. And so like one of my signs, and this is a really stupid one, but I know I'm like really depressed and need to ask for help when I start binge watching 90s TV dramas. Like if I am watching Dawson's Creek, you know, I'm not doing well mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> because I'm just, I'm just putting myself into another world and escaping there and I'm staying there. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, like numbing and coping are things that we foray into, not that we live in fully. Mm-hmm. Like if I am always numb, if I am mm-hmm. always coping then I either probably need to get professional help or make some life modifications so that I can be fully again. Because I think that's what spirituality is about. It's like holistically being. And if so if I am doing things to where I'm not being with myself regularly, I usually know I need to make a change in some way. In that sense, you're talking about like connecting with the divine, connecting with yourself. What would you say are some practices that helps you connect to the divine and what does that look like for you? You know, it's it's different now than it's ever been. Um, because I was like full on like Bible, white evangelical, but yep, that's yeah, I was all of those things for a long group. time. Yeah. Yep. And I don't think those things are bad. I work for a church right now. Like clearly I believe in a lot of those things. And so I just, it, it's I'm I'm not gonna act like, oh, I'm like so beyond those like mm-hmm. <laughs> those practices. Um, but for me in our world that is so loud and so chaotic and so dissonant silence is the best tool that I have. Mm. Um, so for me, a lot of the time I like leave my phone and go get on a paddleboard and just paddle into the, well, I live uh, in Seattle area. And so we have the Puget Sound. So I just paddle into salt water and I just sit mm-hmm. and nothing really happens necessarily. Like, I think that there's some misconception about spirituality that assumes that everything has to be emotional and deep and like 
you need to be like hands raised and crying to have had a spiritual experience somehow mm-hmm. to be very Christian. I think that is a very low view of God to believe mm-hmm. that God is only active or moving or good or caring when we feel emotionally connected. Cause imagine if that was true in our relationships, like if you two were in a relationship and you only felt like you loved each other when you were like really emotional and like really <laughs> deep and like had, I was like, it's some bullshit. Like it's, that's not like, yeah. That's actually usually yeah. when we doubt our love for each other because the emotions <laughs> are usually on the anger side or yeah. <laughs> usually our- <laughs> yes. you're like, Oh, we've, we've hit the numbing point <laughs> like, <laughs> over it, and I, over this. <laughs> yeah. We somehow believe in like this transcendent view of the divine that is only present when we're emotionally connected. And I think for me, there's this reality that mis- like spirituality is both mysterious and strategic, that there are things that we do in our lives to tend to our spirituality. There's a parable that Jesus tells. It's like a farmer plants a seed and a day and a night passes, and though he knows not how it grows. Clearly, that farmer doesn't know science, but that's okay. Like I don't really get how seeds work either. But the idea of the parable is that there's this thing that he does that's intentional, and then there's this thing that happens to the seed that he can't control and isn't aware of. Mm. And I think that so much of white evangelical Christianity and the ways that it's indoctrinated us in lots of other faith systems is to say that everything is strategic all the time. You need to control everything. You need to tight grip everything. When I think that there are direct invitations in, at least in the Christian scriptures and in the Jewish scriptures to mystery, Mm. to existing, and then interpreting what happened while you existed, Mm. to being and asking, how did that make me feel? Wow, something impacted me deeply. Why? And letting the mystery be a thing that draws us in. And so that's been a big part of my life lately is to go lay in the middle of the water on my paddleboard for a while. And sometimes I leave and I'm like, nothing happened. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Because there's something that's happening in my body and in my being as I'm quiet. And I get to interpret that later. Like not everything has to pay dividends right away. I think Christianity specifically has a problem with instant gratification that we want everything to pay dividends right away in our spiritual lives. We ask a spiritual question, we want an answer right then. We ask a question about ourselves or God, we want an answer right then. And I think that, especially in the world of Jesus, Jesus invites people to follow. Mm. And I kind of hate the invitation because it means that you're going to experience things, you're going to journey in things, you're going to change as you go along. Like if Jesus just said, believe in me, that would have been easier. But he says, follow, because I think it implies that our spirituality will change as we are with people, as we interact with people of different cultures and beings and ways of knowing. And so for me, a lot of my spirituality now is asking, how am I changed as I interact with people? How am I changing the mystery? And what does it mean to have some like traditional spiritual inputs that keep me kind of grounded in my worldview? But I don't know. I think that that's some of it at least. Yeah. Wow. You mentioned earlier, like this framework you had to change of viewing yourself from the beginning as inherently bad versus like good. Can you share a little more on that? Well, I mean, a a worldview that assumes that everyone's going to hell if they don't believe that God had to kill God's child to love you doesn't really set you up for high Mm self-esteem. Like it just, it it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think that and, and what is framed in a lot of white evangelical spaces is that like, is that like your sin is so bad that God had to kill God's son to love you. And so you are in everything that you do inherently like evil, your sin is so bad. And like, look what Jesus had to go through so that you could be loved. And that is so sadistic and so strange and so threatening and so coercive. And I think that's how a lot of us learn spirituality is through fear and through coercion. And so if fear and coercion are the starting points, you can't have a positive sense of yourself because it defies all of the worldview that you're given that says like, well, Jesus is only really valuable if you are super bad. Hmm. 
Mm. Like we have a sense of Jesus that is only good if Jesus has to die for your sin. And I'm like, maybe Jesus is just good because God loves all God's kids and you're one of them. Like maybe that's, mm-hmm. maybe that's good enough. Like maybe love is just good because it is and not because it does something. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that for me, some of that kind of sense of being inherently evil was a tactic used by religious people to create compliance culturally and socially mm-hmm. and to maintain power rather than a means of actually like loving people and caring about people. I don't know. It's kind of a cynical response, but like, if you believe that God will throw you into hell forever because God feels like it and like can't do things without blood, then I'm just like, it's just hard to have high self-esteem or like a high sense of self in that world. Hmm. When we've been taught also in that same space of like kind of mistrusting yourselves, not like yourself, like not really, I don't know. I, I definitely felt like I was taught to... Yeah, not trust myself. I think there's like that heart is deceitful above all things or something that that (laughs) one phrase that's used all in the wrong context. But in our intuition and all that, how have you unlearned that? And like, what kinds of things have you done to kind of take that away and then really begin trusting kind of in what you're saying, like your own form of spirituality, your own trust in the divine within you, your own goodness, inherent goodness. How has that journey evolved for you? Because that's taken me a lot of steps, like a yeah. lot of years. Yeah, there is a lot there. I mean, one part was has just been interacting with people who didn't share my background and my experiences mm-hmm. and people being like, you know, that's not normal, right? Like, you know, there's like other ways to think about that. Like when I learned that there were different ways to think about what the cross means in Jesus stories, I was like, what? <laughs> like, there are other ways to think about that. And people were like, yeah, and some of them are much better and less violent. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Like, cool. Like th- that's helpful. And so I think just having space to interact with other worldviews was really helpful for me because it made me feel less crazy. And I use that word carefully, um, not in like an ableist way, just in like a, I think that we are gaslit into feeling like we are crazy when we ask questions about like, about the divine or about our own spirituality and having other people who can go like, even at the basic level, Hey, yeah, I'm wondering that too. And it doesn't fit. I may not have the answers, but it doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. It helps us to know that the things that we intuit aren't, aren't bad. Mm -hmm. And again, our bodies are amazing. Like our bodies are really good at protecting us from harm. Mm -hmm. And so much of what our spirituality does is teaches us to numb the kind of sensors that we have that would say, Hey, I'm, I'm in harm's way. And we're taught Mm -hmm. to call those things conviction by pastors. Like, Hey, like a pastor is yelling at you about something or is like shaming you about something and you are feeling something in your body, mm-hmm. pastors will proactively say, hey, some of you might be feeling something right now. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, no, you're being an ass. Like you're being mean. Yeah. You're, you're scaring me. I am afraid. But what you're teaching me is that fear equals the Holy Spirit. And if that's the case, then mm-hmm. when I feel afraid, I am now numbed to my ability to get out of situations that are dangerous for me because I've been taught in church to stay in places of harm and pain. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I've done is I just let my, like, the places where I feel things sit for longer. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to them. Like saying, hey, you interpret my negative response to you as like the Holy Spirit. And if I like don't do the thing you're saying, I'm sinning, but maybe I just feel scared. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I had to do because I had a really low emotional vocabulary was about like seven years ago, I started carrying around a feelings wheel on my phone or on paper and just asking like, 
We love that. No, what am I actually feeling? Yo, I use that thing all the time. I know. We even have it for our kids. Yeah. It's so good. Mm -hmm. And I just ask like, okay, I'm at church. I have a trigger or something happens or something like peaks my attention. My body has a response. I start to feel tightness in my chest. What's going on? Mm -hmm. What happened? And what am I feeling? And like, sure, maybe it's spirituality. Like maybe it's the quote unquote Holy Spirit, but maybe I'm just really upset. Mm. maybe I'm having a trigger. Maybe I am trying to interact differently. And so I think that giving ourselves space to feel our feelings and then to ask, what are my feelings telling me has been one of the best things I could have done for my spirituality. Because then when I do have a spiritual experience, I can actually interpret it like, Mm. oh, I had a prayer time and it made me feel joyful. Not just like I had a quote unquote spiritual high. Cause I think that's a lot of what we're taught. Mm. And I'm like, oh no, I actually had this interaction with the divine that made me feel confident or that made me feel peaceful, or that made me feel self-assured, or that made me feel connected, or helped me to feel intimacy or loved. And those are really different things than like, oh, I felt a big, deep thing because I sang a song about walking on water. Yeah. Like, it's a really different experience. If you've never heard of the feelings wheel, I mean, you can Google it. You can, there's like the images that'll pop up would be hundreds of them. But how would you explain it to a listener that hasn't ever engaged that tool? Yeah. So there's, there's two parts. And, and one of the places I recommend people starting is in nonviolent communication principles, mm-hmm. which say that we all have feelings um, and that feelings are neutral, that there's no positive, there's no such thing as a positive or negative feeling, even if we feel positively or negatively about how we experience them, that feelings are just indicators. And so the feelings wheel has a list of primary feelings like anger, sadness, happiness. And then as the concentric circles go out, there are more complex feelings. So you can identify your feelings in like the first four or five And then ask, okay, I'm feeling happy. Am I feeling exuberant? Am I feeling joyful? Am I feeling elated? And we can ask those questions of ourselves and of others. And then we ask, okay, I'm feeling in this, like what we would call stereotypically positive categories. I'm feeling satisfied. What need is being met in this? So I get a hug from a friend and it makes me feel happy because it's fulfilling my need for connection or it's fulfilling my need for intimacy. When I'm feeling angry, I might feel betrayed. And it's because my need for safety isn't being met. So every feeling tells us something about a need that is or is not being met. And so in a church situation where I'm feeling shamed by the pastor, my need for safety or acceptance isn't being met. And if I don't feel safe or accepted, then why would I change or how would I change? I might behavior modify to do this for a parent or for a pastor, but I'm not actually doing the work myself to feel safe or holistic. And so I think the feelings wheel in combination with a needs wheel or lists of needs is a really helpful tool to help know how we're doing. And one, just like a practice that I do with my students and community oftentimes is we put out a list of cards that have all the feelings words on them. Someone tells a two minute story to you. And then without giving advice, judgment, anything, all you do is ask what they're feeling. So I tell a two minute story about a church experience where I felt shamed. Someone asks me, did you feel safe? No. Did you feel betrayed? Yes. And then at the end, you look at all the complex feelings that you have and then go, okay, well, what do we do with that? Because I think that a lot of us are taught that our feelings are singular or like simple. And usually we're having a lot of feelings at the same time. And those tools are helpful to allow us to interpret our experiences more effectively. The feelings wheel for, has been a huge resource for me also. But um, it's interesting to hear you talk about that in the context of spirituality, because equally, you could use those same principles. Because in, in spirituality, as whatever version of spirituality you profess towards, 
people have used feelings to convert to whatever, you know, to claim people. So does Disney. Like, it is no different, right? Like, uh-huh. you go to Disney yeah. World and they are the best in the world at creating feelings for you to have beliefs in some way. Yep. So how do we walk in the world knowing that as part of the experiences that we're, we're going through? Cause I'm, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> I'm asking, I'm also asking <laughs> okay, as a Jeff. dad, I'm literally asking as a dad. Cause like, yeah. I mean, I think as I'm raising my kids, I'm starting to see how it's impacting the way they see yeah. the world, you know? Yo, I don't really know, but my right. gut would say that we, I think my, my gut has a couple, I have a couple of thoughts. One is just that we try to pay attention to and teach complexity. Mm. Like one of the things that I do when I'm teaching the Bible now is that I try to draw complexity out of the stories instead of simplicity, because I think like a Disney narrative or a Christian narrative always says there's a simple answer, a simple solution. Like for Christianity, it's like always Jesus or like some kind of abstracted love for Disney. It's always like friendship or trust or belief or like transcendence. And I'm like, okay, all of those things are good. And stories in and of themselves aren't ethics or morals or lessons. They are windows into morals, ethics, and lessons. Mm. And so for me, I think oftentimes I have to ask, like, how are we embracing our values and our ethics outside of those spaces and letting those things shape or give complexity to what we already know about the world? Or if a story that we hear is contrasting to our values or ethics, having questions in our lives that allow us to question those well, to ask yo, I watched Luca and those kids are obsessed with a Vespa and there's a story, you know, I'm like, I don't understand like young boy friendship. I I don't. And I'm like, but what, what might this tell me about my own worldview that I see this story in this way? Like what might this lesson be hitting up against in me that I don't like, or that I do like what thing when I watch, like when I cry at the end of a Disney movie, what's that tapping at in me? Mm. And it's not to say I need to like embrace the the primary lesson of that story, but it is to say, hmm, I was impacted. What does that mean? Mm. And so I think with kids, oftentimes we can say like, what did you think? What did you feel? Mm-hmm. What does that make you think about? And that those invite complexity or for them to be like, yeah, I didn't like that. Okay. Why? Or I love that character. Okay. Well, why do you love Elsa? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, because she's a bad bitch who has like a bunch of ice that she can shoot from her hands. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, what about that? Like, what about that sticks out to you? And it's like, okay, she's a powerful woman. Okay, cool. You know, and yeah. I think that just letting stories add complexity rather than just teach us like fable like values can be really helpful. And I think that that is true of spirituality too. I had this conversation with my son recently. He got a he got a direct mail piece in the mail, like a postcard from this church we had been to before. And, oh boy. and the card, you're going to, you, you'll laugh at this, but the card, I mean, it was like, come to church and you, you, every time you come, you get your name in a raffle for what is a hoverboard or something every time you come. So he's like, he's nine years old. He sees his hoverboard and he's like, I want to win. I, he's like, I want to go to that thing. You know, if I go, I could win. I could, w- dad, I think I'm going to win, you know, like, and <laughs> And it's, but it's interesting because it's a big part of the conversation because part of your story is here's how you were raised. You were in this space, right? And it made you see the world in this way. You know, if you go to, you're, you're involved at a church, you, you know, like whatever, if you can get a child to believe earlier, the likelihood there's going to be these things. That, so they're doing everything they can. And I told him, I'm like, guess what? Like 
churches are really good at marketing. So I'm like, you have to realize like that's not you have to build a set of beliefs that are deeper than those things, you know? Yeah. And meanwhile, I still like, well, I still want the hoverboard. You know, I'm like, yes. I, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. And even ask the question, like, okay, sure. Go to hoverboard church. Right. <laughs> what What do they say to you? And how does it feel to you when you're there? That's really good. Like, yeah. how does the feeling of- like, yeah, the hoverboard church. Right. Do you like, yeah, like being there? Yeah. How does the feeling of the hoverboard potential- matched up to or contrast what you experience while you're actually there mm. and like finding like kid-friendly way to ask that ask to ask that question but like yeah do you like the church or do you just like the idea of a hoverboard like do you like that do you like that person you're in a relationship with yes. or do you like the idea of that person right i think those are like connected values and problem solving skills yes so true amen hallelujah i think it's a huge deal to have this conversation because the the problem is like a lot of us were raised in these communities that now we're having to deprogram our thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And reset. And I'm looking at it through the lens of my children and I'm going, what is my responsibility as a dad? So that doesn't happen again. To let, yeah, to educate them on the front end for them to make their own choices, really, you know, and yeah. see what's happening. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, and that goes into like you've been deconstructing your faith for quite some time now and now in a sense, like rebuilding it to mm -hmm. something that is true for you. How have you even been able to hold on mm. to your faith and your Christianity in this process? Because I'm, I know many, many, many who have just been like, yeah, I'm out. They've moved I'm on. done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is, I just want to name first, that's like a totally valid thing to do. That like when ideas and things don't serve us, and I think there's like a weird like Christian narrative that happens where it's like, well, you're not, it's not about being served. It's about serving like Jesus did. And I'm like, okay, yeah, but that's like some coercive nonsense that says to stay in places that aren't offering anything helpful or good to you. If the church can't offer anything helpful or good, it's not worth being a part of mm -hmm. straight up. Like it, it just isn't. But for me, I think that, you know, I think about um, the late Rachel Held Evans, author, mm -hmm. speaker, theologian, who often said that the Jesus story was the story she was most willing to be wrong about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for me, too, that as I look at the way that Jesus lives in the world, sacrificially loving other people, creating communities of people who are really different from each other to provide for the needs of the vulnerable, to center the marginalized, like, that shit I already believe. Like that stuff I care about. Well, it's actually, especially it's been shaped by Jesus. So it's like, it's easier to, you know, <laughs> be in it in that way. So I don't want to minimize that. But I think it's a story I'm willing to be wrong about because I think that it's a story that if I'm wrong about doesn't cause harm mm. and that actually adds something really good and beautiful to my life. But we know that the story has caused a lot of harm mm -hmm. when told in certain spaces and ways. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes, so definitely. you're willing to say, I believe in that, just not in the way that everybody else is saying it. Is that what yes. you're saying? Yeah. And I think there's a way that that can get really weird, like guru-y, where people can be like, these people believe it this way, but I believe this better, higher, transcendent, Gnostic kind of way. And I'm like, okay, that's not where I'm at. But the conversation for me is actually, um, I'm going to use a big Christian word. We're going to I'm going to call it hermeneutical. So this is like the ways that we interpret the scriptures or the frames that we use to interpret the Bible. And my hermeneutics that I was taught were like, 
God's main purpose in the world is to save people from hell. And if that was my hermeneutic, you can justify anything if it's keeping people from going to hell because hell sounds pretty damn bad. Mm-hmm. And so if I have to coerce, murder, kidnap, if I have to lie, cheat, and steal so that people don't go to hell, my lying is not worse than hell. So if my hermeneutic, if my way of viewing the scripture is primarily through the lens of God needs to save people from hell, that's really different than if my hermeneutic is, say, you know, this is like a, a, a new friend of mine recently said like that her hermeneutic for the Bible is God is not an ass. So if when you, if you read the Bible and God sounds like an ass, that's probably not the right interpretation of the scriptures. And I'm like, oh, if we have other hermeneutics, other ways of reading the scripture, other lenses to view the scriptures, that changes how we come out of it. And so I've abandoned hermeneutics that have that cause harm, mm. uh, colonizing narratives, things that say that like white people or like people, Americans are somehow like God's chosen people and have eliminated Jewish people and like all that anti-Semitic nonsense. Like if I can eliminate those worldviews that are causing harm, I can actually follow this Jesus thing that says like, you know, a tree by its fruit. If it produces good fruit, it's a good tree. If it produces bad fruit, it's a bad tree. So asking what's the fruit. And if the fruit of my hermeneutics or my way of reading scripture is death, exclusion, violence, increased suicidality for LGBTQ plus folks, if it's all of those things, then it's not the right hermeneutic because Jesus' hermeneutic is, does it bear good fruit? And if it's if it's not, then it's not good news. Like, God forbid, if we talk about Jesus, who says he is and brings good news, that we wouldn't have to like justify why our news is good all the time. Like, <laughs> hey, you not doing that thing is like really good news for you because your marriage is going to be better later. Like, hey, this narrative is really good news for you because God's going to give you treasure in heaven later. I'm like, okay. Like if you have to put that many caveats on why your news is good, it's not good. Mm-hmm. So I just look for things that are actually good. <laughs> and that's kept, that's kept me in it because I see these ways of being as I practice the way of Jesus that don't need caveats for why they're good. Hmm. Wow. I like that. So let's say we have a lot of white listeners or some white listeners. I have no idea. We actually have no idea. We have no no idea what our demographic (laughs) is. I'm sorry. So I'm just going to say it for both. So I got two questions. For our white listeners, what would you like to say about what reclaiming your spirituality has been to you, your experience with the white church? And then basically for those people who are of faith, how white people can be better allies to the black community mm-hmm. in faith spaces. I mean, for white folks, I think the best thing that you can do for any part of your worldview, spirituality definitely included, is to assume that the worldview that you've been given frames you and what you think about as the dominant best thing. And that in doing so keeps you from validating and being able to see and experience a broader world that is out there for you to experience, um, right? Racism does three things um, at the first, like kind of topmost obvious level. If it was an iceberg, it's like the part above the surface of the water. It harms people of color, which, right? I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be like white people want to harm people of color. I'm like, no, I don't think we want to do that. Below the surface, right? It privileges and empowers white people to see their worldview as dominant and good. But it, but at the end of the day, it harms all of us. And I think that sometimes it's hard for white folks to see how the benefits of racism or privilege harm. And I just think that you have to inherently dehumanize yourself in order to oppress. Like you have to see yourself as someone who can enact worldview or values onto other people as though they are objects and that that is in and of itself an objectifying thing to do. And so I think for white folks to explore worldviews and ways of knowing, um, epistemologies, ways of knowing, even ontologies, ways of being, that are uncomfortable and outside of what you believe is inherent or 
like a fundamental truth. I think for Christians, this is particularly hard because many people who grow up- about being right. It's about being right. It's about being true. It's about not being- don't deceived yourself, by the world. Yes. Don't don't Fault. go too far. Don't stray. Yep. yep. The fences are very closed and very small, like the pen that you can be in. And I'm like, but if you open that up, one, I just think that there's a lot of white folks who are in Christian spaces who are afraid to foray outside of those barriers because again, the consequences has been hell or exclusion. You've seen a friend kicked out of a church. You've mm-hmm. heard people talk shit about you because you made a decision they didn't like. Like there's all kinds of consequences that keep you in those boxes. But when you step outside of those things and learn worldviews that aren't yours, there's actually a way to discover ways of knowing and being that might actually be more life-giving. That individualism for me is the easiest one. Like maybe individualism isn't the most healthy or good way to be human. Maybe consumption and exploitation aren't the best ways to engage with the earth. And when that happens and we start to build reciprocal relationships with the land, with each other, with the divine, I think it makes a difference in how white folks get to experience the world. And get to do so with more vulnerability, with more love, with more, I sound like a soapy Christian therapist or something, but like, it's true. (laughs) And so I think that that is, so I think one of the best things that white people can do is to do some of that unlearning, to become vulnerable and to step into places with vulnerability rather than defensiveness. Because that, when you do not assume that other people's inherent existence is suspicious, Mm. it lets you be better allies and it lets you believe people more quickly. Um, because a lot of what Christianity does and why Christianity does is teaches us not to believe other people because we as a collective, like, quote unquote, we believe in Jesus. Right. We have and that makes us somehow not believe other people. Yeah. And that right way will always subvert the lived experiences of others who fall outside of that. And that's not love. That's not good. So I think that would be, it's a very abstracted way of being like, check out worldviews that aren't your own. Assume you are wrong in ways or like that you only hold a picture, a small portion of what it means to be human. Mm. And that in knowing more about what it means to be human, you would become more free and getting to try things out yourself. Hmm. That's so freaking good. Okay. For our black listeners who have felt trapped in maybe white Christian spirituality, what would you want to say to them to encourage them in their faith to step out of those boxes, what is something you would like to say to them? Yeah, I would say to any Black, Indigenous, people of color, that our people have been doing spirituality for longer than white people have been Christians. Mm -hmm. Straight up. Like, our ancestors, our communities have known God for a really long time and have known God with or without the Bible and that their wisdom like, like there's this world, there's this assumption that like the Bible is the only way to know God yeah. as though like knowledge of God started with the Bible. Right. And there are ways so that the divine true. has been showing God's self to people yeah. since before the Bible existed. And I think yeah. our people know that. Mm-hmm. And so regardless of how that comes out, I think there's like all kinds of ways that black people have lived the Jesus way for a long time. Mm-hmm. Indigenous people specifically have lived the Jesus way for a really long time. And that there are people who have written about those things, leave spaces that are traumatizing. Um, One metric I use is a trauma benefit scale because every space that we are in, that we stay in, that has saved us in some way, benefits us in some way for the most part. Like I didn't stay in white evangelical spaces because I was constantly traumatized. That was true too, but there were lots of benefits like security and safety and community and resources that my church offered me. But I think once the trauma outweighs the benefit, that should be your first key that it's time to go. That if you're in a small group or a church or a community, this is true of any community, not just spiritual ones, 
when the trauma outweighs the benefit, I think it's a good time to leave. And while there are a lot of reasons to stay, I think that that's a good reason to go. And so I think just know you have freedom to leave spaces and that there are other people who are kind of in what some people would call the wilderness, Mm. uh, exploring and thinking and ideating and exploring ideas about God that are so much more life-giving than what white evangelicalism has given to us, which is more just the tiny little pen that I was talking about earlier. It can't hold our worldview, our spirituality, or our personhood. Hmm. That's really good. I think you're right that I think people have a lot of fear about the exploration, the fear about the wilderness, because it doesn't feel rock solid, stable. Mm -hmm. It feels isolating, right? There's no community all of a sudden around you. I think people have looked at me and those times like I'm a little crazy, mm-hmm. you know, and all those things. So it's hard. That's a hard, yeah. it's, a, it's a big step and it's a hard yes. step. Yes, it is hard. And I have a lot of compassion for that because it's costly to be ourselves in the world is always costly because it will mean subverting the expectations of people that feel like they know us and can hold us and that they feel like they have the best for us. And I can honor their intentions while also holding with reality the impact of those intentions how they've played out in the world. I can believe that my church had the best intentions for me and look at the ways that it harmed me deeply and that I can hold those things in tandem with what I'm learning right now and say, I, I don't know, I, I quote um, this young queer Black uh, artist, Joy Alatacoon, pretty often, but she has a song called um, Someone That I Used To Be. And, it, and the line is like, someone that I used to be is someone that I used to need. And so I think that for many of us, it's not just about believing like that are that places had good intentions but had terrible impact but also believing that the ways that we survived when we were in hard spaces or spaces that weren't good for us we also need we were doing the yeah that we were doing the best we could and i think that for many of us we need to let go of the ways that in our spirituality we have made mistakes or survived or whatever because like for the most part humans are just doing the best that we can some people aren't but a lot of us are just doing the best that we can and making it however we can, even if that ends up being very problematic in hindsight. And I think that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's okay. I think I just feel like a sense of compassion for people who are navigating what we're told in white evangelical spaces is a very simple journey where it's just like, you love God and you love people. And I'm like, okay, sure. But like, since when has loving a person ever been simple? Mm. And so I think that just, I think I just have compassion for folks who like me are on the journey of figuring out what it means to have or not have belief and make sense of the experiences that we've had that have brought us to where we are. Yeah. It's so much more complex. And I love holding it in like a non-dual way, right? Where you can hold them both together and say they both matter. Mm-hmm. I just still am going to go this way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm still going to leave or I still am going to stay, whatever it is, but you're still holding them both as valuable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the thing I would say to that too, is that many of us were taught that the hard thing is always the good thing, Mm -hmm. that the thing that you feel like, and and this is true in a lot of evangelical Christian spaces where it's like, if you feel a strong response or aversion to something, it's probably the thing you should do. And I'm like, that is like saying, like, if if you and I were on a hike together and I was on the path, I hate hiking, but if I was... If I was on the path and you were like on the side, like scrambling through the trees and I was like, there's an easier way, but you're like, no, 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 the hard thing's better. It'll make me stronger. And I'm like, or you might break your legs and never finish the hike. 
mm-hmm. like come on to like the this this path where there's actually a way a direction a purpose and not just like be doing hard things for hard things sake because mm-hmm. that's dumb mm-hmm. and so I'm like maybe many of us just need to unlearn that we need to do the hard thing and just be like maybe I'm just one of God's kids and that's good enough maybe I'm just good because I am and that's good enough and I'm figuring out what that means along the way And now it's time for the breakdown. The four quadrants were huge. I mean, that was, <laughs> yeah. let's let's just be honest. That was a huge moment for Mr. all of us. Mr. White, what'd you call you? Coach. White coach. White, White small group co- coach, coach or something. <laughs> I, was like, I loved it. You're like raising your I was your like, hand. yeah, actually that is kind of, I do that often. Um, Mr. Coach over here. But I mean, breaking that down of the individual, like how you process things in, as an individual, internally, as an individual, externally, as a communally internally or communally externally. I mean, that is all of those elements are probably important, but they do play a role in how you process both your spirituality, your relationship, hard things happening to you and celebratory things happening to you. I mean, it's just, it's interesting to think through that. Yeah. I think it would be a good way to just kind of say like, where do I gravitate the most towards and maybe trying to find a more balanced way, right? So if you're more an individual, like internal processor thinker, that's fine. That could be more of how you are, but the importance of the communal aspect and how that could bring other parts, other insights, other knowledge and ways of thinking to you would be possibly very valuable also, right? So just kind of placing yourself in those quadrants, (laughs) that you drew and then uh kind of oh, seeing. oh you like that you no, like the quadrants no. i mean no but i get what you're saying you get i get it yeah it, sorry for just drawing it the way she explained it you know yeah i also really like how she was very kind of talking about how important it is to like about this sense of like understanding ourselves knowing ourselves and trusting that and like coming back to that space where that is okay to trust those places in you. And that can be those, the things your body's feeling and protection, your feelings that are just neutral, your sensors that are going off inside of you and just really actually trusting that and stopping and listening and pausing to see what is coming from that. I really liked it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting thinking through this context of spirituality and and the story she's lived, which is very similar in some ways to the stories we've lived, although our cultural um, perspective is different. Sometimes I hear these conversations and I struggle with whether it's a critique of the specific church construct or if it's actually a critique of modernity. And where speed and doing things better, doing things faster, doing things, you know, where everything is, is about time, money and thing. And because those principles had been laid on the churches she was involved in. And it's interesting to kind of go, what is the critique of at the end of the day? Is it only this thing and patriarchy and whatever she's finding a way at times to focus, probably because that's her experience, but I think there's some bigger things that we can critique along the way. That's my opinion. 
Yeah, but I would say from a black woman's perspective, I mean, colonization and that whole part, that's that's years and years ago and white dominant culture. I mean, all of that has been going on for a very, very long time, all the way back to colonization. So I don't really think that everything has to do with modern times and modernity and faster, better, bigger, better, stronger. Right. I think there's a lot of things rooted back in those types of things as well, colonization, Mm -hmm. which... Any white people that don't know what that is, look it up and read about it because I'm not going to go into it. But the other thing I think in that sense is what she was talking about, about being then open to other worldviews that go even further back, right? So the ancestor, our ancestors, the indigenous people groups and all of that. If you're saying that we're just critiquing modernity in this current modern church space or, you know, faith space, well, then you should go all the way back to past ancestors and learn from them too. I liked what she said a lot about that history in connection with divine predates the like written word. Yeah. Right. Like I thought that was a really powerful concept to really sit with for a while mm-hmm. and to consider that all people connect with God in different ways. Yeah. yeah. And it's beautiful and yeah. it's okay to be different. I loved I how that. even just saying like, you know, when we were talking about kind of spirituality and relationships and I'll say this, like honestly and truly Jeff and I have always kind of, Back and forth. Sometimes we're really connected. Sometimes we're very far apart in these areas in the space of spirituality. Sometimes we're on the same page. Other times we're like completely in different worlds. So I think as two people are together and maybe walking in their face or in their spiritual journeys in different ways, I love how she was saying like, be okay. Like, Build something new, look at something, look at atypical relationships and and be okay with it not being what the dominant culture might say it should be and be okay with it looking new and different as something that you two can create in your relationship together. That spoke to me. Yeah. I mean, spirituality in the context of relationship is challenging because you both bring your own past stories to that conversation. Yeah. And both past experiences are valid, you know, and then it creates dysfunction right off the bat and a different experience, you know. So I will say, I think you and I fell in love with each other through these hard conversations. And and we continue to have these hard conversations, <laughs> ah, which is why we're here today. You are so right. You are so Which right. is why we're here today learning along with you all. Getting counseling along with you all. We really hope, you know, this season is hard. We are still in this COVID season. We are still in really hard place here in America and the world. We are still all struggling with our mental health, with our wellness. We're still trying to figure out how to do life in a very hard world right now. (laughs) And so... We hope that this series has helped you in any little way along your journey. We hope that it has given you any little bits and tools to help you through this hard life. And just know that we're here with you, struggling in it with you, learning with you, 
and reach out to us anytime and we would love to connect through social. Yeah, you might need to get out your feelings wheel right now and And talk through it with the person that you love. And that's another episode of Love Love or or Work. This episode was recorded by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.